stories to you. Hello, my name is Laura Jekyll and it's a pleasure to be hosting this conversation with Fiona Higgins as part of the Newcastle Writers Festival Stories to You series in 2021. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work, the Awabakal and Waramai peoples, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present. Welcome to Aboriginal people who are listening to this conversation. I'd also like to thank you for your ongoing support of the Newcastle Writers Festival. My guest today is Fiona Higgins, the author of memoir Love in the Age of Drought and four novels, Fearless, Wife on the Run, The Mother's Group, and her latest, The Unusual Boy, published by Boldwood Books. Her novels have been translated internationally in the Netherlands, France, Spain, Germany, and Estonia. Outside of writing, Fiona has had a long-standing career in the Australian not-for-profit sector and has worked with organisations specialising in international development, youth at risk, rural and regional issues and youth mental health. She's founding director of Australian Philanthropic Services, APS, and is a volunteer crisis support worker on Australia's national crisis and suicide hotline, Lifeline. She lives in Sydney with her three children. Hi Fiona, your latest book, An Unusual Boy, is wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. I love the character of Jackson and the unusual boy in the title and particularly his relationship with his mum, Julia. I'm always Mm. interested in how a writer conceives characters and I'm wondering how you came up with these two in particular. And did you have a plot in mind first or the characters themselves? Well, (laughs) every every book is different like every child. Um, (laughs) But for me, generally speaking, and particularly with an unusual boy, it was the characters that came first Um, and I simply start with them whispering to me literally in my ear I I have a sense of certainly Jackson came first um, in all of his neurodivergent glory yes um, and his highly unique take on the world that differed radically to his mother's take and so then Julia came next Mm -hmm. um But literally at the beginnings of a novel, um, I have a sense of who who are the stars, who are the heroes or heroines, if you like, and then the plot unfolds in ways that um, often surprise me. So I can sometimes encounter, and certainly this was the case for an unusual boy, I can encounter during the writing process a plot twist that I didn't predict Mm-hmm. And um, readers will um, feedback that they didn't expect it, they didn't see it coming. And, and I will say to them at writers' festivals and the like, well, neither did I. <laughs> you know, I, did, I didn't plan that out. That wow. just unfolded. So, um, it, you know, for me, it truly is a highly creative process that unfolds incrementally and is iterative and it doesn't start with a grand design scheme. I wish it did sometimes. I mean, I hear of novelists that, you know, are able to, you know, I, I have a friend who won't write her first line until she knows what her last line is. Oh, wow. And, and for me that's just highly foreign because <clears throat> I never know what my first or last lines will be, and they change over the course of the writing. Um, it's all entirely character-driven. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, 
And as the title suggests, this is a book about the unusual boy Jackson. And I love how much of the book is told from his perspective. It gave me such empathy for his character. Um, Whereas at first, um, and as a mum myself, I had so much for his mum, Julia. Was that a sort of intentional move as the book and the storyline progressed? Um, Well, I I, I suppose so, um, in the sense that, you know, when when I was thinking about the novel, I knew it was going to be a, you know, a mother-son tale. Mm. Um, but Jackson's perspective, interestingly, um, was, an, was an easier perspective for me to write um, than Julia's perspective. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a mother of three myself and um, as Julia um, Julia's perspective unfolded, I, I found myself feeling the way she did, you know, mm. whereas with, with Jackson, um, you know, I, I felt liberated when I slipped into his skin and was able to, to see things, um, you know, from his perspective. And I'm not sure whether it was deliberate or not, but I think it does mirror life in the sense that when I think about, you know, my children, um, I'm constantly surprised by, and it's delightful, how, how different their perspectives are on particular things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we come at something from entirely different angles. And I suspect that um, if parents could only slip into the skin of their children <laughs> for an <laughs> afternoon, um, you know, we might be able to make far greater sense of what appears to be entirely nonsensical choices because if we could only see it from their perspective, it makes it's totally coherent. It's, it totally makes sense, um, you know, to, to, to use a, you know, a fairly... Um, uh, generic analogy um you know i have a younger son who loves um cooking and uh you know right. when he's in the kitchen i mean he's nine uh, so you know he's reasonably independent but he likes to use the sharpest knives you know <laughs> and the maternal instinct in me is constantly concerned that he's going to lose a digit or two yeah but from his perspective it's just this wonderful opportunity to just thrust this sharp thing into dough into you know whatever he can get his hands on it's like yep. a science experiment mm. um so I, I think I have used that experience of, of being a parent and constantly yeah. shocked, surprised or interested in how different my children's perspectives are to mine. I've used that um, uh, to, good, to good end in An Unusual Boy. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you've just mentioned, Jackson is a neurodivergent person and has many unusual and complicated habits. Um, You have three children, as you've already said also, but how did you specifically get into the character of Jackson? Um, Well, um, well, as I said earlier, I, you know, I I found it relatively um, Mm. liberating compared to his mother. Um, I think in terms of my own lived experience, it probably assists that I do you know I I know a lot of people who um, are uh, neurodivergent or identify as such Um, over the years I've had a lot of um, you know I've known a lot of children and adults um, who are different or Mm -hmm. non-neurotypical I think there are many many um, more non-neurotypical people and children in the world than perhaps um, we uh, we imagine Mm. Um, and in my own life, you know, um, I, I grew up with a, um, a father who was neurodivergent mm. and um, 
while he isn't Jackson and he isn't in the book, um, having that long-term experience of living and with somebody and caring um, for someone who um, perceived the world around him in very um, unlikely, unusual, surprising ways and often humorous ways as well as sometimes shocking ways, mm. I think that probably um, probably helped me um, a little in the writing process, but but more recently, um, as a mother of three, um, you know, I have many friends with children who are uh, are somewhere either on the spectrum or or perhaps don't have a diagnosis. Um, one of my god children is on the autism spectrum, so some of those um, uh, ticks or quirks or behaviours that Jackson manifests, I you know, obviously observed um mm. elsewhere but jackson himself is is probably a composite of all of the experience of neurodivergence that i've that i've um you know had and you know probably should say while i myself didn't have any um diagnosis you know i as a child experienced myself as um, unusual you know i had highly overactive imagination compared to my peers it probably set me up to be a writer yeah um and had a real sense of my own difference, even though I didn't um, look much different to anyone around me. Um, and so that probably um, probably also informs my portrait of um, a child who um, perceives himself as different but also genuinely is um, non-neurotypical. Mm. Now, without revealing any spoilers, the plot involves kids being exposed to some pretty dark corners of the internet. Um, I wondered if your work with youth at risk and mental health kind of informed this theme. Uh, yes. Um, I mean, I think as a parent, and certainly in my previous um, novels, as um, our um, young people's engagement with um, digital technology has increased over the years. Mm, yeah. You know, my eldest is um, almost 14 and my youngest is nine. Um, so I've seen a, a real progression and a rapid um, increase in um, children and young people's engagement uh, with technology and all that that can bring, um, the benefits mm. as well as the um, challenges. As a parent, I've been um, challenged by it and also in terms of my work in the not-for-profit sector, for sure. Um, I mean, only last week... Uh, I think it was the Office of the E-Safety Commissioner released some pretty alarming statistics that are slightly relevant to an unusual boy pertaining to the number of young people who are reporting um, overtures um, by online groomers. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Yes, a huge upswing, mm -hmm. as well as early, earlier and earlier exposure to inappropriate images and, and videos on, on the internet, which mm -hmm. is, um, of course, you know, we all know it's it's super easy to access, even with all of the parental controls. Yeah, and it's not a it's not a um, it's not an accident that in this that in that that in this novel, in an unusual boy, I've written it so that um, the online incident occurs when Jackson is at another boy's house. Yes, because of course, you know, as a parent, you can be as um, vigilant as you might wish to be. Um, and yet you can't control all scenarios, of course. Um, the genie is very much out of the box. And sitting mm -hmm. with that discomfort 
um, is something that as a parent um, I struggle with. And so it it definitely um, has found itself into my novels and particularly in An Unusual Boy. And it is informed by my experience in the not-for-profit sector and, uh, you know, also um, in my volunteer life um, with a national suicide um, prevention hotline, mm. the, the number of um, reports around young people and um, negative experiences connected to digital engagement is, yeah. is really escalating. That's such a worry, isn't it? I mean, for, for anyone with children in their lives, it's a really, really big worry. Um, how in your own life do you kind of balance that um, responsible kind of parenting but and setting boundaries um, in the digital age? What do you do with your three children? Mm. Um, so it's a, a huge challenge. Mm. Um, I think I'm, I'm probably what's what my my children would describe as a digital despot. <laughs> so <laughs> I um, love that. I really, uh, I none of them have phones, mm-hmm. so um, they all have laptops, but no one no one carries a device around with them. Mm-hmm. So. I've held on to that tightly considering that my eldest is in year eight and he is one of the only children, if not the only child in his year without a phone, or so mm. he tells me. But, you know, I was speaking to him the other day um, at the beginning of term, you know, I thought, gosh, I, I'm probably, you know, I'm scarring him. Here I am thinking that, <laughs> you know, protecting him and I'm probably, you know, making socially you know, isolated, you know, I was worried about this. And I sat him down and said, look, you know, how are you feeling about the phone situation? Because I, I speak to him about my my not-for-profit life, life yes. and my exposure to the research. And I I talk with them about the articles in the newspapers and I typically say to them, look, you know, it's, it's actually not me, it's the scientists mm-hmm. <laughs> that are joining the dots about how you can't unsee images mm-hmm. that you've seen. You know, if you yeah. see material that's developmentally not right for you then it's going to cause possibly cause you issues later in life so I try to be as sort of transparent as possible so I sat him down and said look you know how I feel about phones if you tell me you're you know the social pariah of your year then I might shift on this you're in year eight now Mm. and he said well you know it was fascinating he said well you know mum I'm okay for now And, um, you know, I'll let you know if that changes. But he said, um, you know, I've watched my friends and I just feel like if I had a phone, I'd never be able to get away from them. I wouldn't Mm. be able to come home and relax because while I love my friends, they're always there if you've got a phone. So true. uh, You know, and I think to myself, gosh, you know, for for the introverts amongst us or Mm. those who perhaps didn't enjoy school as much as the next extrovert, having constant connectivity to your friends could be more detrimental than the sadness of perhaps being left out of a WhatsApp group. Um, so for now I'm, I'm sticking to my digital despot line, but, you know, they all play in Minecraft and they all get online, but I, I don't let any of them yet on, on social media and um, none of them have a phone, so. Mm, I think <laughs> that I, sounds great. Am I extreme? Am I extreme? <laughs> God, I, I don't think you're extreme. I think, you know, 
in light of what you just said, it's very sensible. And I, I absolutely agree with the the thought of when I was growing up, not being able to kind of go home and relax um, like we did back in the 80s and 90s. Um, yes. And if you were being bullied, the fact that you just, there's nowhere to escape if you've got a device. Yeah, it would be so difficult. So, mm. yeah. So now, I mean, there's a benefit as well of him being able to say, look, mum won't let me. Yeah, you know, that's I right. can be the bad person. I can yeah. be the the digital digital despot yes and then there'll come a point no doubt where he won't be able to uh, point to me but um that that point probably wouldn't come until about year 10 and by that time I'm hoping he's kind of yes. enough of his own person that yeah. despite whatever exposures he'll be able to make better choices than poorer mm. ones so that's the theory anyway I mean I'm just I'm just struggling in the dark like the next person oh, that's right <laughs> my goodness. So you're listening to the Newcastle Writers Festival Stories to You podcast series. My name is Laura Jekyll and I'm speaking with Fiona Higgins about her most recent novel, An Unusual Boy. So Fiona, let's get back to the book. Um, There are some great and really uh, empathic secondary characters in An Unusual Boy, such as Jackson's friend, April Kennedy, his teacher, Miss Marion. There's his sisters um, and uh, Miller's boyfriend, Riley, too. I especially kind of love Riley with his surf stories and the fact that he's this good guy that brings Miller flowers. I thought he was gorgeous. Um, Why was it important to have these supporting roles in the book and who inspired them? Okay, well... um... Riley is a fraction like an old boyfriend of mine. Oh. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> a very, very old boyfriend. When I was growing up, I was this gorgeous, um, really laconic, relaxed um, surfer skater dude who would bring me um, gifts, gifts from nature typically, which was just um, lovely. Um, so Riley is a little bit of a blast from the past, I suppose. Mm. Um, but in terms of those secondary characters, it was really important to me that Jackson wasn't left alone because he is dealing with some very um, challenging um, personal circumstances. Um, he is a, a victim to some mm. extent and um, it was important that he it would have been too difficult for me to write him without um a reasonable support network so I think that's probably why uh, you know the cast of secondary characters is is reasonably well developed um uh, you know and Miss Miss Marion I think is probably the 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 dance teacher the aerial Mm. silks and dance teacher she's she's really a shout out to you know those teachers in our lives Mm that we've all had that one quirky, interesting, edifying teacher that lifts your vision beyond simply the subject or syllabus matter and allows you to see something of the possibilities of your life. And and that's what Miss Marion does for Jackson by affirming his very um, interesting gifts in in the dance and aerial silks department. so, yes, but I try to keep, generally speaking, with the exception of Riley, I try to keep people I know out of my novels. <laughs> Good plan, I think. <laughs> Although it was hard when, you know, with my debut novel, The Mother's Group, I was um, 
Uh, I wrote that when I was breastfeeding my my second child and I was in a mother's group and and I was very close with my mother's group and (laughs) I'll never forget the moment I went to them and said, look, you know, turns out I've written a novel called The Mother's Group uh, and it's going to be published, but I assure you none of you are in it. (laughs) That was a great book too, because I think I read it not long after I had my second son, Leo, and yeah, it was, um, yes, I can imagine that would have presented some interesting conversations. Um, Yeah, and on that, I guess I really enjoy the way and honest way you write about parenting and motherhood specifically. And in An Unusual Boy, there's Julia and her mother-in-law Pamela's relationship as well, which was very interesting to me, you know, their generational divide and their differences. And I'm sure many women can relate to that um, mother and daughter-in-law dynamic. Um, So was it important that you had that relationship uh, be as pivotal as it was in the book? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I when I write a book, I never set out with a particular agenda in mind. Or, so, but it, it's interesting to me how um, Pamela and Julia's relationship evolves over the course of the novel, and and perhaps um, on that, just as it was important for Jackson to not be alone, it was very important important that Julia found some source of support as as everything worsened around her and her husband was largely unavailable. So the the person who was supposed to be there for her was notoriously absent. Um, And so I I think perhaps, um, you know, perhaps it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy rather than reality, but I would like, I'd like to imagine that um, women are capable of supporting each other um, in important and nurturing ways, particularly in the time of the crisis, um, when when other traditional supports, uh, you know, fall away. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, th- I think you know, mothers mothers in law are often painted as baddies um, mm. in in novels, um, and I just um, I didn't I didn't want to write uh, that relationship that way. I wanted it to be. Um, more nuanced, I suppose, mm, and yeah. and I think it's you know it's it's characterised. Um, I think early on, um, it's easy to feel um, more um, uh, aligned to Julia's viewpoint mm. and to really relate to her sense of um, disconcertedness about her mother-in-law and sort of distance and sensitivity. Um, but I wanted to demonstrate that those sensitivities lie on both sides, that it's mm. not exclusively her mother-in-law's problem, that this, mm. that this relationship has, has not gone as well as it could have. And it takes movement on both sides for them to be able to appreciate each other more as the book unfolds. Mm. Yeah, I really I like that a lot. Um, there were some quite hard to read scenes, especially as a parent of young kids. How did you approach writing them? Because I kind of imagine it would be quite stressful and emotional for you. Yes, mm. it, it is. It was stressful mm. and emotional. Um, there are always, uh, if you're going to write about complicated d- issues, difficult terrain, it, it does become stressful and emotional. Mm. In terms of how you approach it, um, you know, I, I don't really have a sort of a formula. You just get in there and start. But often, you know, I will find myself uh, weeping as I write. Mm. Um, or it takes a couple of goes to get to the nub of it. 
you know, I can't, you know, I'll go close to, to what I need to write, but not close enough, but that's enough for a first go. And then I'll have yeah. to come back at it a second time. Um, so a lot of sort of iteration, I suppose, of the really thorny um, material. But yes, very, very emotional. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of on that as well, I'm, I'm interested in how the book was described as being heart-stopping, devastating and ultimately uplifting, which doesn't give away the ending, but it does kind of allow readers to assume that things, you know, work out okay in some sense. And I'm wondering if that was an intentional um, write-up. Look, I imagine so. Uh, you, mm. you, you probably know, Laura, that um, authors um, forego the right to mm. um, massage the book blurb on the back of a, of a book. So it's very much um, the remit of sales and marketing to determine mm. how they're going to position the book. But I imagine what the conversations were around, well, look, this is good. some of it's quite tough yep. and readers are going to want to know that, um, you know, they should persist. Yes. Otherwise, otherwise they might fear it all ends in, in you know, horror and, and, and travesty. Um, but it, it's funny, even with those words uh, currently describing it, um, uh, my publisher sent out books to a bunch of people in Australia, including Holly Wainwright. Mm. And uh, despite the presence of those words on the back cover, Holly got about th- two-thirds of the way through the book and rang me up and oh. said, look, I just um, I can't keep going without knowing whether Jackson's going to be all right. Oh. Oh. So I said, look, yes. It's not yes. going to be perfect, but mm. Jackson is going to be all right. Oh, um, yeah. And she said, okay, well, I'll ring you back when I've finished. <laughs> well, that just speaks to her attachment to Jackson um, like we all have. Yeah, mm. he's such a wonderful character. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes, yes. So it, perhaps that was what she needed, extra knowledge that it is an uplift, has an uplifting ending to yes. some. Yes, yes, in some aspects. Yes. <laughs> um, so accepting and understanding difference and diversity, um, you know, it was a big theme in the book. And I'm wondering how your kind of own life and experience at work informed this and what made you, you know, want to make that a, a huge theme of the book. Mm. It's, it's almost like a theme of my life, I think. I mean, I've been, I've been working in the uh, not-for-profit sector since 1997 in one form or another um, in, in social justice issues and generally speaking, a social inequity or a social justice issue occurs when people stop listening to each other mm. and fail to allow for uh, specificity or difference, fail to prioritise marginalised voices, fail to um, empathise. And so, funnily enough, um, in all of my fictional writing, um, this is a very strong theme, and particularly um, in An Unusual Boy, the idea that um, difference, of course, um, delivers its challenges, but um, fundamentally is not something to be pathologised, but is something mm. to be celebrated as offering um, a unique perspective that, that we all need to share. Mm. Mm. Absolutely.
You're listening to the Newcastle Writers' Festival Stories to You podcast series, and my name's Laura Jekyll. I'm speaking with Fiona Higgins about her most recent novel, An Unusual Boy. So, Fiona, you have a job and a family as well as being a successful author. I'm wondering how you fit your writing into your life and where you kind of sit to write. <laughs> well, no, I, I, not, I don't fit it in particularly successfully um, <laughs> in the sense that it. it is um, never the priority, unfortunately, mm-hmm. at this point. Um, I would love it to be my full-time work, but I also have, you know, a job in, in the philanthropic sector that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I won't ever give that away, but I would like there to be a, a greater balance. So, you know, it, it took me three years to write An Unusual Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so in answer to your question, I write very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> And a, a book comes out every two or three years. Um, but for now, that's that's just fine because, you know, I, I, I want to um, be there for my family and I, I also want to continue my work uh, in the for-purpose sector um, and writing um, feeds my soul and seems to, at least for the, uh, for the meantime, it seems to be also um, resonating with certain readerships. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so it's it's a good it's a good balance um, in terms of where I write. Um, well, uh, we we renovated our house last year, and so now I actually for the first time ever have a have a have a room of my own. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> Which is so exciting, and I'm sitting in it right now. Um, and it's small, but it's it's all mine, which is fabulous. Um, prior to that, I mean, I wrote I wrote my first novel on bed you know, wow. during, yep. during, during night feeds. And I, I've been known to write wherever the, wherever the, the opportunity presents mm. itself. So I will just carry um, my laptop around with me and, you know, I'll write on ferries or I'll write on planes or I'll, you know, in the Woolies car park. Mm. Um, but um, I'd like to be slightly more structured and, and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully that will occur at some point in the future. But for now, Yep, where is what it is. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I've heard and I've read in previous interviews that you say you're very much an accidental writer and have not always had a passion to write fiction. Mm. Um, how then did you get your first break and where did you um, find inspiration um, to write your first book? Mm. Well, it's it's a bit it's a bit of a long and convoluted story, but I'll try and accelerate it okay. for you. Thank you. So. Um, uh, about 16 years ago, I um, moved to rural Queensland to um, be with my now husband, who was a farmer. Mm. And um, at the time, I had no rural or agricultural experience. And I wrote emails to my friends all over the world and up and down the eastern seaboard of Australia, um, describing this new rural life and uh, what it was like being a latte-loving vegetarian moving to Jandowi yeah. population 700. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, and one of my friends on that emailing list was uh, a, a lady by the name of Virginia Lloyd who's, who's based in New York, and she uh, and I had met through our not-for-profit work, actually. We were not writing friends at that point, and she yeah. wrote to me and said, oh, look, these emails you're writing, they're, fabulous they're interesting they're describing a production to to plate um awakening you know this is kind of interesting material have you ever considered writing a book 
And I said, well, no, actually, no, I haven't. <laughs> How would I do that? Yeah. So we, we went through this whole process. And at the time I was, um, you know, I didn't have any children. I was working, um, but I had, compared to now, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of excess time in my mm. daily life. And she um, challenged me to write between 60,000 and 100,000 words. And she said, look, if it's in decent shape, um, I'll, I'll try and sell it for you because she had worked in publishing and and was working as an agent just as a friend I'll do that for you anyway it unfolded that that is exactly what occurred um I wrote this draft um she had a look at it gave me some pointers I rewrote it then she tried to sell it um and lo and behold three major publishers wanted it and I suspect that's because it was tapping into some kind of unusual zeitgeist at the time mm. because it came out a year before Farmer Wants a Wife hit oh. television. <laughs> so that memoir was called memoir was called Love in the Age of Drought. Yes. Um, a city girl, a cotton farmer, you know, and uh and and sort of romance and, and life. So um after that I thought, oh I'm done. I've written a book. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I'd had my second child and uh, she was um uh, a, a, a tricky infant compared to my first. My first baby had been a textbook baby and was um, a good sleeper and a good eater and all of those things that you want in a first baby. And my second baby was a bit of a shock to the system. And <laughs> yeah. uh, she woke up at four weeks and, and never went back to sleep. And, um, you know, during that time of sleep deprivation, I started to, um, I don't know what you'd call it, perhaps I was delirious, but I started to hear the whispers of characters of, of women who uh, were having very different experiences of motherhood. Mm. And I started sort of writing these down, just standing up at the computer in between feeds and all over the shop for nine months. Um, and I was about 60,000 words in and I thought this feels like a novel because their lives are starting to intersect. I'd better write to Virginia and find out what she thinks. And so I wrote to her and said, I think, think I might be writing a novel. Would you mind taking a look at this and letting me know what you think? And Virginia read it and she wrote back and said, yes, you are writing a novel. You should, <laughs> you should continue with yeah, it. and Do something if, about that. Yeah. That's right. If you complete it, I'll sell it for you and, and um you know, the rest is history. So when when she sold that one, um, I was offered a two-book deal with Alan and Unwin and then, uh, you know, I've written subsequently and it hasn't been, it hasn't been difficult for me to um, tap into those character voices, if you like, at the beginning of each novel. Mm. Um, That's fascinating. Mm. And I've, I've, you know, I, I know that there's, there's more there. It's just mm. a matter of having the... Um, the time and mm. and the opportunity to um, to listen and um, and uh, put and you know let it flow onto the page, yeah. hear mm. their stories and get writing them. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Mm. So I wondered if you this may not be an issue for you, but if you have to um, deal with any kind of self doubt and also how you cope with criticism as a writer, um, and yeah, how how do you deal with that? No one likes criticism, um, no. <laughs> but in any um, in any professional domain, one has mm. to learn to not just cope with criticism but um, respond to it. Mm. I, I think that the interesting thing about writing and criticism is there's the constructive criticism that you'll receive as part of the professional process, um, which I really um, enjoy. I enjoy receiving um, structural feedback, editorial feedback, 
I I love that part of um, of working on a on a manuscript. Mm. Then of course once it's it's published and and you can't do anything more about it, <laughs> you do receive criticism from other quarters. Yes. Um, and you know I do my best to listen to that as well. Um, but sometimes, of course, you do um, see criticism, particularly not necessarily in traditional um, media reviews, but you know, online forums or, or yeah, that's right. Um, and it can be quite personal um, mm. and be making assumptions about you as a an individual, and that's mm. that's um, always difficult. But I think often it it says more about the person mm. leveling that criticism than than anything else so you know like anything in life it's important to to listen but you have to be able to set some boundaries up around well uh, you know what you actually take on oh, yeah absolutely so just a couple of very quick little last questions I wondered if um, you could tell me who some of your biggest literary inspirations are Mm, oh well, <laughs> how long have you got? I, I, read, <laughs> I read very widely. Yes, <laughs> across across multiple genres, and wow. I'm enjoying you know um, lately um, teen fiction. But okay. uh, we won't we won't go there. Teen and yep. tween fiction. Right. Um, but you know, I, I love reading Australian novelists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always come back to Malcolm Knox and Christoph Schalkes and Kylie Ladd. I just love them all. Um, okay. In terms of a, a classic that I return to frequently, I, it's, it was probably pivotal for me um, and set a tone for me in terms of my writing, although I didn't know it at the time because I first read it when I was 19 and I've read it at least eight times since, and that's um, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Oh, wow. I think yeah. it's, in, you know, it's just incredible, the perspective of a, of a perpetrator. Yeah. I, I, I love that. Uh, and I guess it's about, again, um, trying to cultivate empathy with, um, with, you know, a narrator who's highly unlikable on some yeah. level or mm. you know unable to be understood so you know I, I, I love that work um yeah there's, there's plenty plenty yeah. I've, I've always got many. many to go on with well who are you reading at the moment maybe that's um that's um, on the bedside table yeah uh, so I'm I'm reading Anne Lamott's um Hallelujah Hallelujah Anyway which is not a new title um mm-hmm. but it's a a biographical musing on addiction, actually. And she she wrote the very um, interesting book, Bird by Bird, that many writers will have read um, on writing and life. And that's a that's a fabulous, um, a fabulous book to read if 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 you're mm-hmm. a writer. Uh, but she has had many uh, works since, and Hallelujah Anyway um, is is a spiritual um, narrative around addiction and it's um, very poignant um, while being humorous and I'm reading it just for my own um, interest but also uh, we're doing a little bit of an addiction module at the moment with my work with the um, suicide prevention um, hotline so it's um, related reading. And what was her name again just for anyone who needs to note it down? 
Anne Lamott, and it's L-A-M-O-T-T. Oh, yes, I've mm. seen. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, so lastly, I guess, what's next for you writing-wise? Have you got a follow-up to an unusual boy planned or just a whole <laughs> new book? What's, what's on the cards? <laughs> well, nothing's planned exactly okay. at the moment. I've got plenty of ideas, but wow. I'm time poor. So yes. um, I, I, I don't know. And there's more parenting, more working, and let's let's see what um, how it how it unfolds this year yes. and beyond. Gosh, fingers yes. crossed. There's more, but um, you know, I, I don't know. Mm. Well, hopefully we'll all get to read more from you in 2022, perhaps, Mm -hmm. or beyond. Um, So thank you so much, Fiona, for joining me today on this podcast. Thanks for having me, Laura. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you again to Fiona Higgins. We discussed her latest book, An Unusual Boy, published by Bulwood Books. Remember that this series will continue until the end of May and episodes will be available every Wednesday morning. Please follow the Newcastle Writers' Festival on Facebook and Instagram for regular updates. The 2021 festival will be held from September 24 to 26. We would love your support and you're welcome to make a donation via the festival's website to support the event which has been hard hit by COVID. Just click on the donate button to find out more. to you.